Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to grasp an idea that I heard several years ago and didn't grasp. It's called, in shorthand, ESG, and you're going to hear more about it from this point on in time. It is now part of the lexicon of corporations, of government, of financiers. And to look at that, I'm lucky to have today Derek Young, the Managing Director of ESG Consulting Services, a division of Summit Strategy Group, and Linda Gasparello, the program's producer and co-host. Derek Young, welcome to the broadcast. Tell us a little about yourself, what you do, and what your company is. Thank you so much, Llewellyn. It's absolutely an honor to be on the show and to be able to speak with you, your viewers, and your listeners. Uh, I will say that I thought about a bow tie, but I didn't think I could pull it off quite as well as you did. So I've opted for something a little bit different, but uh, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation and looking forward to, uh, to digging in. Um, you know, my background is I, I've spent over 20 years working in the corporate sustainability, corporate social responsibility, and now environmental and social governance fields. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a unicorn in that I actually went to school for this and have been working on it for the entirety of my career. Uh, and I spent uh, the first part of my career in the, in the D.C. area, much like yourself, and I worked on the policy side uh, and then migrated over and have spent over a decade uh, developing and executing these programs for corporations, including the likes of TGI Fridays and FedEx Office, uh, and joined my current company about five years ago. Uh, Summit Strategy Group is a California-based uh, ESG and sustainability consultancy. Uh, we work with companies of all sizes and we focus on helping them to diagnose and really understand both the risks and the opportunities associated with environmental and social governance issues, and then how to prepare the strategic plans necessary to position them to succeed in the market as it exists today. How did these things come together? What was the genesis of ESG? If you go back to really almost all the way back to the 1960s uh, and 1970s, the, the, the really the birth of the what we would call the compliance movement in the environmental sector. When we saw the Clean Air Act and we saw the Clean Water Act and the EPA uh, being constituted um, and, and into the 70s and early 80s, the focus was really on what we call environmental health and safety or compliance, right? It was how to be legally compliant with the need to address what was now the emergent environmental regulations that had been released. Fast forward into the early 80s, and what you started to see was the emergence of uh, sustainable development. You know, the Brundtland Commission, which happened in, in Rio de Janeiro in the 80s, set the definition for sustainable development um, and really set the course for companies to what we say uh, essentially was do less bad, right? It was how do we mitigate our environmental impact in a way that puts us on a course to being more environmentally friendly. Um, at the same time, we started to see the beginnings of the engagement on social issues, mostly because of license to operate. Uh, and that led to what became known as corporate social responsibility in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And what's happened since then is, is probably the really fascinating thing. Uh, for someone like myself who's worked in this space for so many years, CSR or corporate social responsibility and sustainability were bottom-up endeavors. It was rolling the rock up the mountain and hoping it didn't roll back over you in the process. Um, ESG, which as you well pointed out, has been around for quite a while, Llewellyn, started out as an investor term. And 
really just looked at the environmental and social risks of investing. Um, but it has since really subsumed all of sustainability and CSR under one umbrella. And whereas sustainability and CSR are bottom-up endeavors, because of its relevance to the investment community, because of its relevance to key financial institutions and other legitimate stakeholders, ESG tends to be a top-down endeavor. So it starts at the C-suite. It starts at the board level. And that is pushing companies to act far more quickly and far more completely when they begin working on ESG-related issues. That's very interesting. I wonder, how do you measure it? How do you measure whether a company is in ESG compliance or a government department for that matter? So there's a couple of different ways that we see ESG unfolding from a metrics perspective. Uh, one is there are over 600 ESG rating platforms around the world. These are organizations that do what we call both active and passive analysis of ESG performance. So active is something like uh, the, the Carbon Disclosure Project, now called the CDP, which will actually do uh, an assessment of a company's efforts to reduce their carbon emissions, but they do it by putting a survey out that the company participates in. So that company has a role in uh, the, the analysis, and then they get graded or scored according to their performance. The, the more interesting ones are the passive ones, and there are a number of, of raters who are simply looking at publicly disclosed data and are taking that data and making independent assessments of ESG performance. And then those scores are sold uh, or, or provided to the investment community who use that to make decisions about investment risk and investment uh, choices. That's, that's one platform for uh, measuring or evaluating performance. So how are you scored by these rating platforms? Uh, the other is the reporting frameworks. And there are two or three that are, are pretty dominant. One is the Global Reporting Initiative, uh, which is both a, uh, a broad reporting framework that you can leverage and use to produce information about your performance, but it also offers you an opportunity to be scored uh, according to the level or quality of your report. And, and in recent years, we've seen the investment community uh, put a great deal of favorability behind what we call the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, or SASB and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or TCFD, uh, both of which are voluntary disclosure frameworks but are used to assess how companies are performing in this space. Uh, Derek, is it possible that uh, companies that are uh, trying to be all ESG uh, things to all people uh, most likely will not be as successful as the ones that focus on a smaller subset of relevant and material topics? Linda, it's a fascinating and very, very, very uh, important question. Uh, I absolutely think you're correct. So we, we counsel clients frequently that the, one of the first steps that any company who wants to develop an ESG strategy should take is to complete what's called a materiality analysis. And a materiality analysis is a, a way to evaluate and understand what are the most priority issues that a company should focus on? If you try to spread yourself a mile wide and an inch deep, you're going to have a really hard time uh, developing and executing programs that are going to be effective to and resonate with the key stakeholders that you're trying to influence. But through materiality analytics, through risk analysis, you can begin to distill and pull out 
the, the critical issues and the areas of exposure where you really need to be focusing and that are going to resonate and have the most impact on the audiences or stakeholders you're trying to address or influence. Can you give us an example, Derek, of if you were uh, called in by a corporation or a government department or a local government and asked to do uh, ESG analysis, how would you go about it? And what would you tell them they have to do if they're not in compliance? There is no real endpoint here, right? There's a an effort to put you on a, on, a, on a positive trajectory. There's three key steps. The first is to understand the landscape and to know not only what are the key issues that you need to be aware of, but how are you perceived as a business by the relevant stakeholders that are assessing or rating your performance. And we do that through some diagnostics. We look at key trends and drivers. We will go through the materiality and the risk analysis. Um, we do an assessment of ratings performance. We pull together the baseline analytics that we need to be able to build that foundation, right? If you're thinking of it in the context of building a house. Then we take that and we, we talk to the client about the strategy side, which is sort of phase two. And one of the things that I find is, is absolutely essential in talking to a client is to first ask them what success looks like to them. One of the things I find mind boggling is how many businesses go into these types of, of strategic planning exercises without first determining what they actually see as success. And so we use what we call the five stages of sustainability leadership. So it's compliance or, or reactive, proactive, strategic leadership and transformative. And we How ask are you them, received? Are you received what, with open arms or people say, oh my goodness, something else to worry about. Do I have to deal <laughs> with another thing that I didn't have to deal with before? Um, more often than not, it's, it's, it's more welcoming than that um, because we're usually in a situation where we've been brought in uh, based on a, on a legitimate need they're trying to solve for. Uh, there are times where we will get into conversations where there are executives who are just a little overwhelmed, you know, and, and I think what we try to help them understand is not to make a mountain out of a molehill, right? In a lot of ways, this is not rocket science. We're talking about risks and opportunities. We're talking about business continuity and business viability. And if we do this right, the resulting implications are that we're going to create positive environmental and social action, but that those actions are going to infuse into and positively influence and affect business performance. We're, we're just trying to help them understand how to do their business better and to address some of these externalities that they have to respond to. Uh, Derek, uh, social, uh, the S in ESG. Um, that is, uh, social responsibility is very contextual and shifting, which makes it very hard to define, also much harder to measure. What are your metrics for measuring that? So the past year or two have been really interesting for the S and ESG, right? We've seen a number of things that have created a very different uh, categorization for the social and ESG than we would have seen, let's say, two or three years ago, right? The the global pandemic uh, being one of them, the, the emergence of a, of a much more robust civil rights movement that followed in the, the, the death of George Floyd. Uh, and what's happened is that the S has really become about people. It's become the human side of ESG. And so within that category, we're looking at things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. How diverse is your business? Are you looking at trying to recruit and retain 
uh, diverse hires and to what percentage uh, of, your, of your total employee population are those hires constituting. Uh, we look at labor rights, you know, and, and, and how are you treating the employees that work for your company? Uh, health and safety issues fall under the S now. So what level of, you know, occupational incident rates do you have? What level of injury rate are you showing in, in, in your business? And what are you doing to protect those employees? Uh, and then we look at a lot of issues that are more traditional to CSR, like what kind of philanthropic giving uh, are you, are you, in, you know, executing? Uh, are you doing volunteer work? And, and also just how are you interacting with the community and, and, and uh, the, the social um, connections that your company has with people around you? Derek, let me follow up with a question about uh, if a company, for instance, uh, is requiring vaccinations, would that be something that would be put into the metrics for scoring? Generally, yes, but hard to say definitively. And the reason it's hard to say definitively is that a number of the rating organizations, the, the majority of them, frankly, uh, don't always disclose the methodologies that they deploy for scoring. So often you have a sense of the KPIs uh, or the key performance indicators. You have, you have a sense of the of the, 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 the buckets or the, the categories that are being measured, but you don't necessarily know that this action equates to that point. Uh, you can buy your way into those methodologies at time, and a lot of companies do, uh, but sometimes what we have to do is just try to put companies on the best possible path, knowing that in doing so, it's going to positively influence those overall ratings uh, and also just help them reputationally. I mean, something like that has a direct bearing on employee recruitment and retention, right? Because employees know that that company is looking after them. And when you think of the great resignation, which is unfolding before us right now, you know, one of the, the, the fundamental needs that ESG delivers on for a lot of the clients we work with is being able to ensure that they can recruit and retain an effective workforce by demonstrating that they care about the people that they're bringing on and their values aligned with those employees that they're hiring. Derek, just to follow up on employee retention. So uh, yeah, something like the uh, Fortune used to do 100 best companies to work for. This is an ESG measurement. This is when you've got happy employees, when you retain employees, you also often have more profitability. Um, so it is an important metric and it is measurable because you're retaining employees. Without question, uh, you know, the, the happier and the more uh, content your employees are, the more productive they are, the more productive they are, the more efficient the business is. And a lot of those awards and rankings that you see the corporate nights or the, you know, the Reuters or the Forbes lists uh, really are, are, are indications of businesses who are taking these issues seriously, uh, you know, and they demonstrate an awareness of the importance of engaging with those employees and paying attention to those employees and soliciting feedback from those employees. One of the things that I think a lot of a lot of companies miss is do employee engagement surveys and not just in a one-dimensional way where you actually ask them to respond to questions, but in a much more three-dimensional way where you take those responses and commit to addressing the places where you have gaps. Uh, you know, and those are those are the companies that tend to outperform those those metrics and 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 do well in those in those rankings. Um, let me ask. Um, do you issue some sort of certificate, some sort of good housekeeping, a better business bureau certificate or recognition that can be stuck on the door, used in advertising, uh, et cetera? 
there isn't a, a, a brand or a certification at the moment that applies to the corporate level. There are, um, you know, uh, accreditations that professionals can go secure that show that they understand these issues. But for the most part, the, the way that companies are articulating and demonstrating an awareness and an understanding of, of these issues and, and, and highlighting the actions they're taking kind of unfold in two or three ways. One is a web presence. You know, make sure you have your information up on your website. Two is having clear and well-defined goals that you are able to publicize and then demonstrate performance against so you can actually show how you're doing. And then th third is in the reporting and the disclosure, putting out an annual report on ESG performance using the right disclosure frameworks um, and showcasing your work that way. So much like sustainability, you can't just slap a label on it. Um, and, and we can probably come back to greenwashing in a minute, but uh, that's one of the reasons for it. But uh, there, there are other ways that you can go about this. Uh, uh, Derek, go back to greenwashing for a minute because it's in the news and I'd like you to address that. Sure. So I think that greenwashing has become an unintentional consequence of the rapid rise that we've seen in the press for ESG reporting and disclosure, right? So there's such a high volume of data and it's being pushed out into the market right now. And in some cases, it's, it's not an intentional effort to mislead. It's the absence of standardized and rigorous platforms that say this is exactly how you should report and what you should say. But the, the unintended consequences of that are that not everybody's data is the same, not everybody's reporting is the same. And there is a legitimate concern that that information can be put out that is either intentionally or unintentionally misleading and cause greenwashing. Um, this, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, recently released a, a sample letter for climate-related disclosures. And the reason that they put that letter out, while they didn't actually say greenwashing in the communication, was to standardize the communication because too much of what they were seeing was too all over the map. Um, so, you know, we've seen that. We've actually seen in places like the UK uh, and, and other, other markets that there's starting to be more regulatory oversight of disclosures to prevent unintended or intentional greenwashing, but this is the, the consequence of the volume. And one of the things that we tell a lot of our clients is be thoughtful. You'll hear us, we use the reference, the say-do gap, right? Do what you say, say what you do, and be really tight in the way you communicate that. Um, but also make sure you're using legitimate and, and, and accepted frameworks for reporting and that you're analyzing and assessing your data and I'll tell you, one of the unexpected things that's really come from all this is that the assurance industry is shooting up like a rocket ship right now. For, you know, all the big four accounting firms, all, the, all the, the accounting industry in general are spending billions in building up their ESG programs right now to be able to provide data assurance in order to help all the companies that are reporting have validation on their, on their data. So this is all part of an ongoing dialogue. I'd like to ask Linda before she asks her next question, what is greenwashing? Let's tell our viewers and listeners so they understand. I think that it is promoting uh, something having to do with the environment that your company is doing without actually implementing this and really just puffing it. Sure, horror. Why would you think I know what puffing is, Linda? Uh, uh, would you like to describe greenwashing, Derek? And we'll come back to Linda who has a question or many questions. Linda's comments and description is not far off. I would agree with her. 
it, the simplest way greenwashing is using marketing language instead of factual information to tell a story about your environmental or social actions. So if it's not verifiable, uh, if it's not factual, if it's not accurate, and you're putting something out there simply to try to make yourself look better, that is considered greenwashing. So um, an example might be, you know, several years ago, you know, th there was a, a lot of, of uh, accusations and claims around companies who were putting out sustainability reports but weren't actually doing a lot of the work. They were just marketing their underlying intentions uh, and trying to frame it as a, as, a, as a marketing piece, and that was seen as greenwashing. Let's get to the governance part of ESG. We've talked quite widely about uh, environment and social, but governance. Governance is an important part of what investors look at. What has been your experience with the G side of it? Yeah, you know, to me, the G side is the glue that keeps this all together. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's probably the more critical of the three. Uh, and it's a combination of factors. It's, it's, a, it's a way to look at the ethical operation of business. So are you doing the things that you need to do? Are you uh, compliant with the regulations you're supposed to be compliant with? Are you you know, executing your taxes the way you're supposed to be doing that. It's all the things that sort of come from, you know, ethical uh, operations and responsible operations of business. It's also, how are you managing this function or these issues within your company, right? I mean, is there executive visibility? Is this something that is uh, connected to the C-suite? Is it connected to your board? Um, how integrated and embedded is this in terms of its, its fundamental operations? Uh, we also look at issues that are connected to policies and legal frameworks. So, for example, you know, we often uh, counsel clients that one of the first things they need to do is make sure that all their policies are accurate and up to date. You know, do you have a policy on diversity and inclusion? And, and is it relevant to the larger issue? And if it is, are you executing it properly? Do you have a policy on environmental health and safety, on climate? Right. So there's a certain amount of governance that is you know, really geared towards just making sure that you have built in the, the, the fundamental structure necessary to make ESG an effective part of your business. And then there's the ethical side of it, which is, are you operating as an ethical business and doing it, doing the things you have to do from a compliance perspective? So Derek, we're also looking at in corporations, a big hiring boom. You need a, a rather large staff in order to comply with every aspect of this, not to mention the accounting firms and the law firms. There are a lot of companies that are out there in the United States that can afford this kind of investment in personnel. There are a lot that can't. And there are smaller companies. There are also public companies that have investors. What do they do? What, what is the minimum they should have on board? I think the minimum thing, and it's a great point, it's, it's, you know, it's really, really a great point, Linda, and it's one that I think I consider often, right? We spend a lot of our time on the bigger businesses because of, of their relevance and just their size and their, their financial capabilities, but, you know, there are numbers of companies that are out there that, that are struggling a little bit to, to figure out how to handle this. The first thing that I would say is just make sure you have a baseline ability to capture and report on the things that you know are going to be required, right? So if you are a public company, the Securities and Exchange Commission has is, is already asked you to report on what we call human capital management, which is sort of labor issues and diversity issues. We expect that before the end of the year, they're going to pass the rulemaking that will require uh, climate-related disclosures. 
Uh, so to stay ahead of the curve and know what you have to report against. Then I think it's really a question of be thoughtful and diligent in pulling the data together that, that accurately and transparently answers those questions and make that information public. Make it publicly disclosed on your website. Get it out in a way that shows that you're paying attention to those issues. That's the minimum. I think the step up from that is even if you can't do a full comprehensive ESG strategy, pick an issue or two that has a high relevance to your business, set a couple of achievable goals and work on those goals. You know, I think we sometimes put the, the perfect is the enemy of the good into effect here. And we try to be everything to all things when, you know, if you're in a manufacturing business and you can drill down on, well, Hey, I'm going to reduce my energy and water efficiency and I'm going to really focus on energy and water efficiency uh, and in doing so, make my business more environmentally effective. And I'm going to work on safety issues because I need to make sure my employees stay safe. And I'm going to set some goals in those areas right now and show that I'm paying attention to them. That's a big step for most companies. And, and in a lot of ways, it's more than you need to do. It's, it's more than sufficient. Can you give us an example, Derek, where you have counseled a company and there's been benefit all around for that organization? Sure. So, I mean, we've, we've been brought in on a number of occasions uh, to help companies in where we, at, at the phase that we consider, okay, there's the, oh, great moment. And then there's the, oh, no moment, right? It's like, we've just realized we have a problem. And um, kind of in the middle of those two things is where a lot of the best ESG consulting occurs. It's, we're not quite at the like red blaring lights emergency moment, but we, we do realize we have to make a change. And a lot of times that comes from uh, the following type of a circumstance, right? A, a CEO or a chief legal officer um, or, or you know, chief financial officer gets a phone call from a board member or an investor that says, hey, I just saw your score on fill in the rating organization. Normally it's ISS or Institutional Shareholder Services. Um, what's going on with this? Like, this is a problem. Um, or an investor will call up and say, we'd like to schedule a call with you uh, so that you can tell us about your ESG efforts because we're not seeing enough in this space. I've had both of those circumstances brought to me by clients, right? And in both cases, you know, the, the, the reaction was to go out and, and bring us in because they didn't know how to rep properly respond. In, in one case, we helped a food company to take their uh, overall ESG ratings and to make the uh, put the steps into place that would significantly improve those scores in order to create more confidence with their board and to be able to help show investors that they were paying attention to this and we were able to do that across multiple rating platforms in the other case which was the investor case uh, we did help a company to build a a uh, not only the underlying esg strategy but to translate that into ways where they could communicate to investors uh, in their roadshow meetings, what they were doing and to build greater confidence. And we actually flipped from a negative to a positive uh, the concern that that company was facing. That's our show for today. Derek, we thank you for coming on. We have many more questions we'd like to ask you, but we don't have the time. Does ESG have a time component to it? Television does. Thank you so much. That's our show. Bye-bye, everybody. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. 
We are there.